We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. It's Anzac Day 2018, the 25th of April. With me, the Velvet Glove, Scott. How are you going? G'day, Trevor. I'm really well, thanks. And yeah. again, I'm drinking another Carlsberg. Very good. And you've provided the 12th man and myself with different versions I did, yes. of Asahi. Mm. Much appreciated. 12th man, you're enjoying your Asahi, and the, the Australian Cricket Board has still not called you up. Still waiting, Trevor. Still waiting for the call up, but you're with us. Greetings, Earthlings. So, as we, uh, well, we anticipated, Last week, it would be coming up to Anzac Day, and actually we got a nice little bit of feedback from one of our listeners who enjoyed your recommendation of the song. Um, uh, the band the, played Waltzing yes, Matilda. Yeah. It's a terrific song. It is. Yeah, it's very stirring. Very stirring. Do you know, it almost uh, moves me to tears sometimes when I hear it, particularly by one particular singer, British singer called June Tabor. Do you know her? No. She's oh, it's it, she gives a haunting rendition of that song. Mm. Might try and find that for mm. later on. So my favourite line in it was, um, "We buried our slain, and the Turks buried dead, mm. and then we got back into it again." Mm. Yes. Yeah. It was very powerful. Yeah, but just the idea of a guy who used to go a roving and mm. now he mm. can't. And for me, it has a personal connection because my father was a bit of a swaggy before he went off to war. Now, he didn't lose his legs or anything, but it was, you know, something that he did. He was jumping on trains and travelling around the countryside. And, um, yeah, so it was just you know, sort of something with a bit of a personal touch for me. It's amazing how such a respectable person as yourself can be spawned by <laughs> a knockabout <laughs> bloke like him. Very working class. I'm so working class. Dad was so working class that um, his children, uh, none of us have middle names because Dad thought that middle names were for posh people and we were working class stock Mm. and therefore we didn't have middle names. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, I'm from working class stock too, Trevor, I, I think, you know. Yeah. Now... How was, your, how was your Anzac Day? Because I went to my service, uh, dawn service at the Gap, and it was the typical Gap dawn service hijacked by religion <laughs> once again. So it was a bit of a talk by a guy who described a battle in a village in France where the, uh, the Germans took a village and then the Australians counterattacked overnight and it was a great victory. So it was a lot of talk of valour and heroism and not so much on, holy smokes, how many people died and didn't come back. But in any event, um, that was then followed up with a prayer and a hymn. Then there was the last post and wreath laying, followed by another prayer and a hymn and finishing off with uh, Advance Australia Fair. And that was the end of it. So... The thing that gets me every time is the 
assumption by the local priest that everybody there believes in God and he says, let us pray. And then he heads off with his usual sort of rant to God, praying for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to bring peace upon us, etc., etc., so, um, so it was the usual uh, thing, and it uh, pisses me off every year. And every year, I swear I'm going to do something about it. And every year, I turn up uh, twelve months later and just suck it up. But um, Scott, I you had went a to one similar experience this morning at the Green Slopes Private Hospital, five thirty a.m., and we had an opening prayer followed by a reminiscence of In Flanders Field, which was performed by the. Uh, Cantrice Choir at Somerville House. Mm-hmm. Then into that, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, it was. Then we fell off the wagon again. We went to intercessory prayers, <laughs> and then the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, and then a hymn, oh. "Abide with Me." Yes, "Abide with Me" was an ours. Yeah. Exactly. It just seems to be trotted out at every single um, Anzac Day service, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we had the Anzac Resolution. The special address, which was very interesting. This is from the son of a VC recipient who received a medal uh, for taking part during the action at uh, Hamel, I think it was. It was somewhere in northern France. That was the village that the Anzacs recaptured overnight. Okay. Could be the same one they were talking Mm. about today. Mm. Anyway... This guy, his father received a VC for his heroism and that type of thing in there. Mm-hmm. Then we went to reef laying. And then after that, we had the ode, last post, one minute silence, then revelay. Then we had national anthems of New Zealand too, which I'd never heard the uh, New Zealand national anthem in full, where they had the first half of it in Maori and then after that it was repeated in English. Beautiful anthem. It is, yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know. One of the best ceremonies I ever went to was at uh, the Gap when the cap, school captain of the Gap High was a Kiwi who has, was a great singer. Mm. So he sang the Kiwi National Anthem at the Anzac Day ceremony and it was probably the best ceremony I've ever been to just because of that. Mm. Mm. And we finished off with uh, Advanced Australia Fair, Prayer of Dedication and Blessing, mm. and then the uh, Dismount of the... Catafalk yeah. party dismounts, however yeah. you say that. So, so was that and a local was, pastor from some nondescript sort of... Yes, she was, she was the uh, local uh, chaplain at the hospital. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's... i got to admit, at the end of it, I was exp- almost half expecting her to say, you know... You know Go in, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You know? <laughs> yes. Doesn't the rank hypocrisy of these religious types, oh, it makes me want to vomit, I have to say. I mean, you know, the talking about coming from Christianity, which they, you know, keep telling us is a, a religion of peace and love and, you know, brotherly and sisterly love. And then, you know, they totally ignore all the lives of the German soldiers who were killed. You know, I mean, they were Mm. from the same Christian tradition as the blokes on our side. Mm. So, you know, I mean, it's just rank hypocrisy. No perspective from them, yes. No perspective whatsoever. Yeah. Yep. And and, and I, look, you know, I'm I'm not going to make excuses for not attending. I just I just had a good sleep in today, but um, honestly, I don't think I could stomach 
listening to all those religious people who who really have taken over the whole thing pretty yeah. much, haven't they? Well, yeah. you know, um, Trevor, a couple of years ago, he said that he had pulled out the original Anzac Day order of service. And it was a hell of a lot more secular back then than what it was now. And that would have been... 102 years ago, I think. Yeah, I've yeah. got one from 1916 yeah. uh, that I was just looking at before. And sure, it's got three different, it's two different archbishops and some other priestly character who speak, but it seems that they give rather secular um, sort of resolutions. And uh, it's a bit hard to know what they said exactly, but based on what's in the program, it seemed a much more secular. Um, sort of service than what we get now. Mm. It's about time somebody reclaimed it. Mm. There you go. There's a challenge, dear listener. Reclaim your Anzac Day ceremony. Yeah, really. I, I, I did actually speak to the guy who runs the one at the Gap at one stage, and to be fair, he was sort of uh, open to suggestions, I think. If I actually pulled my finger out and approached him and tried to do something, I think it could happen. But it's all a question of time, isn't it? And, you know, this is the thing. These guys, these priests, these clergy, it's their full-time job to proselytise for mm-hmm. us. It's a little part-time thing that we're trying to do in amongst other stuff. But these guys can be at it full-time. So, anyway. But Christianity is so deeply entrenched in it all now. Mm. I went to... I made a point of going to visit the United Nations War Cemetery in Pusan in South Korea when I visited a few years ago. Um, and look, I can tell you, they've all got crosses on them, you know, pretty much, unless there might be a few exceptions, you know, of uh, members of the, of the Jewish tradition or whatever who who had a different... But they're, they're all lined up like, you know, like members of the Christian religion. Mm. You know, it's been imposed on them, whether or not they were in, in real life believers or not. Mm. And I think it's a disgrace. Well, we're not the only ones who get a little bit disappointed by some aspects of Anzac Day. Another person who's, to say the least, disappointed, she was a very disappointed called Catherine Devaney. And this is what she had to say about Anzac Day. Oh, language warning, dear listener. The F word gets dropped here a fair bit. Do you have Catherine? Uh, as a as a recording, do I have her as a recording? No, but I'm going to read out what oh, she I said. See. Yeah, so I'm going to drop the F word. Okay. Myself. Yeah, there you go. Oh, we're we're used to that, right? There you go. Anzac Day is fucking disgusting. It should have gone in the bin decades ago. As it gets closer, my head feels tighter and tighter, and I feel more and more nauseous. I blame the collective cognitive dissonance seeping in. I abhor Anzac Day and can't wait till it's over. I'm so delighted to hear the chorus increasing every year, saying Anzac Day is bullshit. It's a Trojan horse for racism, sexism, toxic masculinity, violence, homophobia and discrimination. She goes on to whinge about how she was sacked from her job writing a column for the Melbourne Age and she's some sort of comedian who I've never heard of before. But holy smokes, did Facebook go for her in response to that. But here's the thing. 
assuming what other how other people celebrate Anzac Day is a dangerous thing. Like I go and I have my own thoughts about the day, and other people go and have their thoughts. We're all at the same service, but we're thinking about it in our own different ways, and it's very presumptuous to try and um, guess what's you know read the minds of everybody in the group as to what they're thinking and why they're there. It's very presumptuous, I think. So I think people, you could you could poll a thousand people at an Anzac Day ceremony and say, "What does it mean for you, and why you're here?" And you get a whole spectrum of answers. So um, I don't think, uh, you know, the line that really upset me was toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Because there's not enough reference to the work and deeds of females in the armed forces at a standard Anzac Day ceremony, is what she'd be saying. When did the nurses get a good mention at an Anzac Day ceremony? Well, is or is it the saying? whole thing about, you know, male valour um, charging into the, you know, the bullets of the enemy and that sort of thing? Does she see that as toxic masculinity? You know, I mean, this is an example of where males get screwed over because they're the ones who are actually... Getting shot at, by and large. Sure, it wasn't pleasant for females being left at home without males or for the females who were working in nursing situations or other areas, but, you know, this is one area where males actually get the rough end of the deal, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So a little bit of sympathy, please, for males and a little bit of, yeah, just sympathy wouldn't go astray, I think. Where does she get all those... uh, those, um Toxic elements from. Well, here's the thing that I found really disturbing. It's a Trojan horse for racism, sexism, toxic masculinity, violence, homophobia and discrimination. Well, out of the three of us, I think I can comment on the homophobia. I've been going to Anzac Day ceremonies since I was 10, I think. And I went to the march for a couple of years, but then turned my back on it because I didn't like that element of it. But I, I still go to the dawn service every year. And... I've never f- noticed any homophobia in it. I, I just don't think there is any. Yeah. yeah. I think that was just a social justice warrior looking for airtime, and she was looking to be trolled and to have people abuse her and create a profile, I think. Well, no doubt she probably did get trolled. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, we get a comment on our Facebook page. Uh, no, on our website from Greg B. Um, thanked us for introducing him to... And the band played Waltzing Matilda. He said, uh, Your complaints about the religiosity of the modern Anzac Day service reminded me of the Gallipoli Centenary Service a few years ago. After having to listen to the classic There Are No Atheists in the Foxholes speech from some preacher, a pair of school children took the stage to read a letter written home from World War I servicemen. It couldn't have played out any better. The first letter was detailing the deviation of or the devastation of towns after battle. The eerie feeling of people's empty homes made all the worse by the crucifixes on the walls. But he supposed they would be comforting to someone if they were in for that sort of thing. So that was good. The guy riding back home saw him, you know, through vacated homes, um, suggesting that at least he wasn't religious. Maybe it was comforting for them. So, um, And he wants any recommendations for other 
uh, war songs that are of a secular nature. Send them in if you know of any. I can recommend one, um, also by the same author, Eric mm. Bogle, same songwriter. Mm. There's another one, and I look at the the name escapes me. And it escaped me last week, and it's escaping me again this week. But <laughs> but it's also a very moving one about visiting. It's about going to France and in the contemporary era and visiting the you know war cemetery and looking at the and grave was, of one particular. And I was wondering cemetery. about the song that was played as I was lowering him into the grave. That's right. Okay, yeah. I'll try and find it and play it at the end. There we go. Then Greg B goes on to talk about the tax conversation that we had. Yes, can we get to that later? later. No problem. We'll do that later. But yeah, Greg had some good feedback. Now. Uh, we were talking about Syria and chemical attacks mm-hmm. last week. Mm-hmm. And, dear listener, I have a link to an article from the John Menadue blog. And I also heard this story from Cameron Riley, who does a podcast called The Bullshit Filter. So, highly recommend that podcast to you. But anyway, there's a, a journalist called Robert Fisk. F-I-S-K. He's a highly regarded expert and journalist on Middle East affairs. He's an Arab speaker, he's based in Beirut, and he's won heaps of awards for journalism. So he's not just some guy from BuzzFeed who's straight out of a journalism school and drawing together blog posts blog post or something like that. So anyway, he, you will recall that in Syria when they were talking about the chemical attack, there was footage of a hospital with people dousing water over victims and uh, this seemed to indicate that they'd been subjected to a chemical attack. And Robert Fisk went to that very hospital and spoke to one of the doctors. Now, the doctor wasn't actually present at that particular event but said it's just common knowledge amongst everybody there that there was no chemical attack that essentially these people hide in tunnels underground during bombing raids and uh, there's also a dust storm and people were suffering from basically lack of oxygen due to dust debris and that's why they came into hospital. And while they were there in the waiting room, somebody said, chemical attack, and everybody panicked and started dousing water on each other. But there was no evidence of any sort of chemical attack at all. So this attack by... But there was, Trevor. I mean, whether or not it was real, Mm -hmm. there was video footage of canisters, gas canisters, that supposedly had been dropped from helicopters or planes that carried the chemicals, carried the chlorine or whatever it was. Well, the main footage I thought that people were relying on was the scene in the hospital with people. That, that was what we mainly saw, but I, I definitely recall seeing um, clearly photos of what looked like gas canisters that, you know, broken ones or these damaged ones lying in the rubble in the rooms. Right. And look, as for Robert Fisk, I know he's a, he's a very experienced and, you know, somewhat mm. highly regarded journalist. Mm. He's also a a pretty strong anti-war activist. Mm-hmm. And uh, the impression I get, I've, I've heard him over a number of years, he's, he's often on Late Night Live, you've probably heard him there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I am of the persuasion that Robert Fisk is a little bit anti-West. Mm-hmm. So he may well have an agenda to, you know, to attack the West for anything they do. So I'm, I'm not sure, and yeah. I may be quite wrong on that, but yeah. I take what Robert Fisk says with a little bit of a grain of salt, I have to say. Fair enough. But the jury's still out. It this is, is out. the point. Yeah. Like we've, well, not we. On this occasion, we didn't, but we've applauded the action of the US, the French and the UK in Well, we didn't bombing. applaud them. Well, our, yes, we did, because our government did. Our government oh. did, yeah. Yes. But not us three. No, no. not us. No. I mean, I think we agreed that, you know. There was two of us sitting on the fence and Trevor was dead against it. Yeah, look, and having thought about it over the past week, I've pretty much come to the view, uh, I think the same as Trevor, that um, it was symbolism. It was, I mean, why would our government sit around, sit on their hands while the Syrian government and the Russians and various other factions, you know, let's face it, it's a complex situation, you know, murder literally thousands of Syrian citizens by other means and then our governments get all upset when a few tens of people are allegedly killed with chemical weapons. I mean, as you say, what's the difference? Dead is dead. Mm. And some, what is the estimate? Something like half a million, four or 500,000 Syrians have been killed in the civil war. And uh, it looks like the Syrian government and Assad are going to remain intact at the end of it all. And um, Well, this is it. I mean, like the... And there's going to be... That city there's now Hell been... to pay for anyone who's left standing and is seen as an enemy of Assad. Yeah, and my understanding is that the city where the alleged chemical attack has happened was one of the last holdouts of the rebels. Mm. So it's basically now Assad's mopping up yep. and he's going to clean up any opposition and anyone that looks like they've pulled on a uniform to oppose him will be put up against a wall and shot. Yeah. Mm. Anyway... One of the things we said was that, or I said at least, was we've got a UN and they're supposed to be giving the green light for things like this. I mean, sure, if you're needing to defend yourself through self-defence, you can launch a, a military attack. But in something like this, we should be getting some sort of UN authorization. I mean, as members of the UN, that's what we've agreed to and we've seemingly ignored that. But we can rest easy now because, (laughs) incredibly, um, despite accusations that it perpetrated yet another deadly chemical weapons attack on Saturday, Syria next month will chair the United Nations Disarmament Forum that produced the treaty banning chemical weapons. Mm. (laughs) So they're going to be in charge of the... Subcommittee in the UN for disarmament of chemical weapons. Syria, can you believe it? What suitably ironic, isn't it? It is. You know, it's it's up there with you know when the Saudis were given the position on sex discrimination. Mm. You know, and yeah. and they were they were chairing the human rights yeah. uh, arm of the United Nations, mm. weren't they? Mm. So um, in this article, we've got a link to it. Actually, uh, right wing Tony sent me this one. So he found it in the Australian, and he said. You know, Trevor, you're probably not going to believe it because it's in the Australian, but here's the article. And 
I then Googled around and found it in other sources, so I'll trust it. And um, uh, So, yeah, thanks, Right Wing Tony. But um, in the article it says, having the Syrian regime preside over global chemical and nuclear weapons disarmament would be like putting a serial rapist in charge of a woman's shelter. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a, a, a good analogy. Mm. Scott, you sent a link to a story about uh, that more than half of federal Liberal MPs don't trust climate science, mm. according to a think tank. Mm. I couldn't read it because it was hidden behind a, a, a paywall, paywall yeah. but... Um, it was very interesting. I, I just was looking for the full article then on Twitter, mm. and I couldn't find it because mm, it was right. tweeted, right. and um, which doesn't seems to ever remove the paywall. Anyway, it was very interesting to read it. <clears throat> um, more than half of the federal Liberal MPs don't trust climate science, which I find absolutely fascinating that you would have. 50% of people in any group that would voluntarily say they don't trust the science, you know, mm. when the science is backed by 98% of climate scientists and you can already see it starting to happen in our own neck of the woods, mm. you know, it, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that they, and it then comes back to, I suppose what it did bring me back to was it, it makes sense then why you've got these clowns that are still pushing for a government funded coal fired power station. You know, if they don't believe it... That's right. You know, it, it makes absolutely no sense, but they just don't believe it, so therefore they're not scared, you know? Yep. But I, I seem to recall something uh, where evangelicals in America were unlikely to believe in climate change. Or actually, no, they were more like unlike... They were likely not to want to do anything about climate change because they figured that... God was the, going to come the, back. The, the end of the world was mm. coming soon, anyway, in their lifetime. So why bother? Mm. Um, you may as well spoil the planet because it's all coming to an end. But use um, it up. Yeah. yeah, cut down the forests. Yeah, dig up the minerals. I think it's one of those situations where clearly we are not scientists, and you just if there's an overwhelming weight of evidence or overwhelming number of scientists saying you know that such is the case then really you just have to go with it, don't you? You can't. You do. You know, and that is it. You, you've, got to, you've got to lay down and say, well, I don't understand it. These guys understand it. They're the ones that are telling us that this is right. So you've got to go with it. And, and the risks that if they're right and we refuse to believe and do nothing about it are pretty bad. So um, even if you were doubtful, then given the risks, you'd have to say, well... Let's assume that they're right and do something about it because exactly. the risks are too high. Mm. Do you suspect that there's an element of this um, current in recent times of um, not respecting the views of so-called experts, you know? Yes. It's this democracy, so-called democracy of opinions yep. where my opinion is as good as anyone's and I may not be a climate scientist but I happen to think something different. So my opinion is just as good as that of somebody who spent years, um, you know, acquiring the relevant skills and expertise to make a, a considered judgment. You yes, know? Yep. I think you're right. We're, we're all entitled to our opinion, mm. and, yes. and climate science is an opinion. Perhaps. That's just an opinion, isn't it? Yes. After all. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, 
Ron Williams, uh, he's the guy who challenged the school chaplaincy program twice. And won on both occasions. Yes, which caused the government to change the way that it funded the school chaplaincy program. So rather than the federal government directly funding the chaplaincy program, what they did was give the money to the states and then the states fund the chaplaincy program. And that was their way around the legal problem exposed by Ron Williams. So anyway, Ron Williams has started up a petition and we've got a link to it. And dear listener, if you are listening to this podcast and you're not prepared to sign this petition or pull your finger out and just click on the link and do it, then stop listening. Go, go somewhere else <laughs> and listen to something else because seriously, this is an abomination in our system. And if you've been listening to us for any length of time and you can't be bothered... Just clicking on the link and putting a vote in on change.org and just piss off and go somewhere else, <laughs> seriously. Because it's just, it's a terrible program. It's, for goodness sake, it's, uh, it's only available to people who are appointed by religious organisations, yet supposedly they are not allowed to proselytise. So that's the basis of the system. And... It's cost us $700 million since its inception. and uh, How many submarines would you get for that? Uh, you get a periscope because right. submarines are $4.16 <laughs> billion, Scott. <laughs> Maybe more than a periscope. But You'd get a damn good periscope. Yeah, a pretty good periscope for that, yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's a story there. A French a, periscope. Yeah. You can sign the petition... Um, and, oh, one other thing here. So um, I think there was a quote here. Yes, this was um, Christopher Pine at one stage um, when he was then the federal education minister. He was asked how the school chaplaincy program would operate. And he said, quote, well, the chaplaincy program was established under the Howard government as a chaplaincy program and Julia Gillard changed it to a chaplaincy and social workers or school counsellors. Our view is that school counsellors or social workers should be provided by state and territory governments should they choose to do so. But we want to return the chaplaincy program to its original intention, which is one that involves a religious element. We think the school counsellors and social workers are properly the responsibility of state governments and our chaplaincy program should be exactly what it was supposed to be, which is a chaplaincy program. Hence, they then removed the Gillard requirement that a secular person could do the job and made it clear that only a religious person could do the job. Please sign the petition. Twelfth man, have you signed? I have, yes. Good. I've signed. Very good. I've signed as well. So we can continue to listen to the podcast. <laughs> might be just the three of us by the end of this. <laughs> do you, why, do, why do you think Julia Gillard um, put up with it at all? I mean, she's known to be an atheist. You can't imagine... And she's an intelligent you know, person. You can't she, imagine she would have supported it in principle. No, what she did, though, was, was entirely justified. What she did was she took the program and she said, right, you can have the money for either a religious chaplain or you can have it for a secular social worker. Mm. And that was entirely oh, the right thing to do. Yeah. 
and she left that up in the school to make the for the schools to make the decision whether they're going with a religious chaplain or or a secular social worker. It was the Abbott government that came in that said, "No, we're going to return this to a religious chaplain's thing." Mm. Well, you'd expect that from, from Tony Abbott, but mm. uh, she not, wanted to keep the religious option because she didn't she didn't want to lose the votes. I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah. She was being a politician. There's a terrible interview where she is with um, the ACL being interviewed. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's awful. She just um, just cozies up to the ACL and comforts them with all sorts of warm thoughts about how much she values religion, even though she's atheist. Mm. So, yeah. And that's how we would be different if we were serving in our national parliament because we would not be cozying up to these religious types at all, we'd mm. be telling them in no uncertain terms where they belong, which is outside our political system, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, I'd invite them to a meeting just so I could tell them to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I did put a language warning in very earlier. Well, you invite them along yeah. to the meeting and that sort of stuff, you let them stand up and you let them have their say and then you say at the end of it all, thank you very much, now who's got something sensible to say? <laughs> you know. Look, I, I have to say maybe I'm just an extremist on this point, but I would like our political leaders who are not themselves religious to actually get up on their hind legs and tell everybody, whether they want to hear it or not, where religion comes from in human history and what it really is. It's superstition. They wouldn't even know 12 million. They They wouldn't, and that's part of the problem. You know, um, I mean, you know, I don't think, you know, people necessarily ought to pass some sort of test, you know, to qualify as as being eligible for election to parliament. But at the same time, you know, I really wish our political leaders were a bit better educated in the history of you know, human society and, you know, where we come from and where religion comes from and where it belongs, which is, you know, locked away in the, in the museum of very bad ideas. You know. <laughs> the museum of very bad ideas. I like that. I like that. All right. It's a little bit extreme, but I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Spe- speaking of museum of bad ideas, uh, there's an, a link to an article here, dear listener, about... Parents who have chosen very strange names for their children and different countries have different attitudes to children's names. And um, I'll just go through a little bit of this article. While most parents assume they have free reign when naming their kids, that's not always the case. Certain names are illegal. And depending on where you live, you might be surprised by some of the laws on the books. Uh, In California, the name Jose, J-O-S-E, is banned for the reason the little accent mark over the E makes it technically illegal in California. Uh, In other jurisdictions... Why would the little accent mark make it illegal? Do you have any idea? Because it's difficult to print that in Mm, many government... Uh, documents bodies would have difficulty printing the e with the accent it's, over it well it's not a part of the standard english script correct that's why yeah and look i i have to say i'm i'm aware that um, people who come from latin languages who learn english struggle with 
English pronunciation because we don't have those little cues as to the correct pronunciation, which they do have. Mm. You know, those little accent marks tell them what more or less the sound should be. Mm. And they come to English and they see an E and they're like, is it E, is it E, is it E, is it what, you know? Mm. So, look, I, th- I think we've lost a bit from our language uh, deleting all those accent marks. They would certainly be useful. Mm. Of course, there's the old story of the fireman who had two boys, Jose and Jose B. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Trevor. Boom, boom. Anyway, in New Zealand, as with many countries, uh, New Zealand has a public registrar that determines whether or not baby names are acceptable. The registrar's decisions can be downright confusing. For instance, officials banned Lucifer, uh, as the name has an obvious religious meaning, but they allowed number 16 bus shelter and violence as names. Mm. The most common rejected name in New Zealand is Justice, which seems odd at first glance until you realise that Justice is a title for a judge and New Zealand bans self-appointed titles. Other rejected names include uh, For Real, which is the numeral four, followed by R-E-A-L, Justice, with a Z, Yeah, Detroit. Um, And in 2008, a New Zealand judge agreed to make a nine-year-old girl a ward of the court so she could legally change her name from Tallulah does the hula from Hawaii. <laughs> Jesus. <coughs> uh, ah, yeah. Um, let me just see. There's a couple of other interesting ones here. In Denmark, they have an approved list of 33,000 names, and if you want to go outside that list of 33,000, you need special approval, which is hard to get. Uh, they rejected applications for Pluto and Monkey. Pluto? What's wrong with Pluto? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and well, Venus is a name, isn't it? Yeah. What's uh, wrong with Pluto? In 2015, a French court rejected a couple's decision to name their child Nutella, noting that the name, while creamy and delicious, wasn't in the child's best interest. Instead, the court ruled that the child be named Ella. Excellent work from the French court there, I think. Yeah. Um, China bans overly religious names, including Muhammad. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they ban Muhammad in they China. They do. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Fun well, fact: got the Uyghurs out in the western provinces. Yeah, they have, they have a bit of strife with um, Muslim insurgency in uh, northwestern China. I mean, Muhammad, of course, is an unbelievably common name in Islamic circles. Mm. Fun fact for you: my daughter, who um, is is with a um, a Lebanese Christian, his name's not Muhammad. But anyway, she, she knows a lot of the Lebanese community in Sydney and she was talking to another girl who also knew a lot of the Lebanese community in Australia and this other girl said was talking about her friend called Maui and my daughter said, oh, Maui, I, I know a guy called Maui, maybe it's the same guy and this friend just laughed her head off and then showed her her 
her phone with a list of contacts of Maui's. And, of course, Maui is short for Muhammad. So, <laughs> so she had about 12 Maui's in her, you know, her phone book contact list. And to suggest that, oh, because you know somebody called Maui, maybe it's the same person was mm. showing a lack of knowledge of names in the Lebanese community. Anyway, that was that. Uh, just quickly back to New Zealand... Uh, justice, as we said, gets knocked on the head and Lucifer got knocked on the head. And um, But the registrar there has shown some leniency and they did allow a set of twins to be named... Well, one of the twins was named Benson and the other <laughs> one... was called Hedges. <laughs> Correct. Seriously. <laughs> Benson and Hedges. Oh, my goodness. Famous brand of cigarettes, of course, in... Others got, that got approved, of course, were violence, as we've mentioned before. And number 16 bus shelter. I mean, how did that, makes get, no sense, how did get, that get through? Um, so, it's the New Zealand for you. It's a form of child abuse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Putting weird it is, names yeah, on so that's why courts... And, uh, and that's why they have such um, powers of... Um, yeah. You know, stopping stupid names. Yeah. I mean, you've heard that joke about two dogs, haven't you? You haven't heard that joke about I've two dogs? It, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell it to you. Dear listener, again, language warning. Okay. A little Indian boy asked his father, Papa, how did your father name you? Well, son, my mother gave birth to me and my father came out of the teepee to see a big black bear, so he named me... Big Black Bear. The boy continued, So what of my two sisters' names? Well, son, your first sister was born and I went out the teepee to see Little White Dove. So I named her Little White Dove. Your second sister was born and I came out from the teepee to see a herd of deer grazing. So I named her Grazing Deer. Why do you ask? Two dogs fucking. (laughs) Give me a laugh. (laughs) Ha ha ha. The twelfth man did laugh just then. Just, just a gentle smile. Yeah. You guys ever bought a gun? No, I did have a firearm when I was younger, mm-hmm. but we handed it back in with the gun buyback scheme. Really? Yeah. Why did you hand it back? Why? Because yeah. we didn't need it. Mm. Yeah, but a gun's a gun, isn't it? Well, yeah. you had to register it. We had so. to register it, and you had to jump through hoops and all that sort of stuff. So, no, we decided that, you know... I mean, I hadn't shot the bloody thing since I was 12 or something like that. So, you know, it was and just... who were you shooting when you were 12? Ooh, shooting... What did I shoot at? I... Pigeons. <laughs> well, it was the only thing that was powerful enough to take down was a pigeon. But, um, you know, I shot at kangaroos, and you know, <laughs> I remember seeing this kangaroo sitting there and said, what the hell's that? You know, just yeah. scratching on his chest where I'd Seriously. shot at him. So, you know, so... Poor kangaroos. Yeah. Mm. But no, I I did have a gun, but I handed it back with the gun buyback scheme. And, you know, they were paying damn good money for those rifles too. Right. Mm. Who was paying? The government? Government was, yeah. Oh, they gave you money? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. That was the whole point. It was a buyback scheme. They were paying above what the market rate was for firearms and all that sort of stuff. You took in your firearm, you got given the money, you could stand there and watch it be destroyed if you wished. How much did they give you? 350 bucks. Wow. Mm. That's good. For a ratty old 
22. Exactly, yeah. It was only a single shot. It didn't even have a magazine on it. You had to yeah. Yeah, you had to put in the shot and that sort of stuff. If you tried to sell it on eBay, it was probably worth... 50 bucks? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, good, it was a good scheme. Good deal. The one thing John Howard did, got to give him top marks for that. Absolutely, it was. It was, it was a very good scheme. It worked very, very well. And, you know, the, the proof's in the pudding. You know, we've had no mass shootings since Port Arthur. Mm. Yeah. So it did work. Yeah. Although there have been an awful lot of shootings in the suburbs of, of Sydney in recent years. Yeah, but they've been gang-related and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, they, you're never going to get rid of those sorts of shootings. Yes. You, you can't stop that type mm. of thing happening. Don't get me wrong. I, I also approve of the, um, the buyback, you know, get weapons out of circulation as much as possible. Mm. Anyway, I've got a link to an article here that describes how to buy a gun in 15 countries. With the United States, uh, pass an instant background check that considers criminal convictions, domestic violence and immigration status, and buy the gun. And then that's compared to 14 other countries, which many are similar to Australia in that you've got to jump through a bunch of hoops. So here, apparently, join and attend a hunting or shooting club or document that you are a collector. Complete a course on firearm safety and operation and pass a written test and practical assessment. Arrange firearm storage that meets safety regulations. Pass a review that considers criminal history, domestic violence, restraining orders and arrest history. Authorities may also interview your family and community members. Apply for a permit to acquire a specific type of weapon. Wait at least 28 days. Buy a specific type of gun for which you receive a permit. And, of course, the main thing in Australia is that you've got to have a proper uh, locked gun safe mm. and police can come and knock on your door and say, want to check your gun. And anybody with a criminal intent is not going to want that. No. So, uh, so why you could say, well, criminals could just you know, own a gun legally... The thought that the police could at any time knock on their doors legitimately and say, we want to enter now and look at your gun, is just going to deter people. So that's a big thing in Australia and many other jurisdictions, that that capacity for police to enter and, and look. So, And that is why, yeah. you know, the criminal elements only buy weapons on the black market yep. and they keep them under the bed and that type of thing. And, and after they use them to bump someone off, they dump it, don't they? Yeah. Because it's a liability for them to keep it after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it would be tricky for an underworld character mm. to get hold of a gun and, and you know, an unlicensed gun would be a... Would be a, a and they cost a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, they cost what a is, lot on the black the market. Mar- what is the price for a black market handgun? It's, you know, for... I mean, I, I read an article about um, they, they discovered that there was somebody importing guns from a dealer in Germany, you know, handguns, like really good handguns that are highly desirable on the black market. He was importing them and uh, selling them off. And I think, I forget what the price was, but it was like ten or $20,000 for one was what mm. they, they go for. It's a lot of money. They're not cheap items. That doesn't surprise me. You know, yeah. it, it, they are a very expensive item yeah. these days because they have been banned yes. and they are very hard to get hold of. Having said that, my daughter was in an Uber 
and she was with some friends and they were wanting to head home and they said to the Uber driver, just stop here at the 7-Eleven, we want to get some stuff on the way home. So they got out of the Uber and piled into the 7-Eleven and while doing so, a guy with a gun hijacked the car, told the Uber driver to get out and took over the car and drove off with it. And I said to her, oh, look, there's no way that was a real gun. It would have been a replica or something like that. Anyway, turns out it was a real gun. Like They caught the guy later and it was a real gun. So there still are some out there. But we've reached a situation now where I thought it was probably highly unlikely that somebody just hijacking an Uber driver's car at a 7-Eleven would have a, a real gun. Yeah. Can you legally buy replicas in Australia? Because I wouldn't have thought so. I think they've been banned as well, haven't they? You can buy them, but they've got a um, thing in the barrel that points them out to be a replica. You can tell there's an orange thing that's been placed in the barrel and that sort of thing. Really? But what about, uh, say, say a shopkeeper wouldn't see that, though? Could... Well, that's the whole point. It's, you know, it's in the end of the barrel, you mean? It's in the end of the barrel. So when you come in there... So it's point it... very obvious. Yeah, it's very oh, obvious. So okay. It's in the barrel. Ah, oh, right. That it's a replica. As you're looking down the barrel, you can see. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. Mm. I recall when I, you know, was a high school teacher many years ago. Um, uh, a student brought a replica gun to school one day and got into seriously deep trouble. Mm. Mm. And uh, I was under the impression that the government has really clamped down on the importation of such replicas. There has been a very serious clamp down on them. It is very difficult to buy anything that looks like a real gun now, mm. you know. It is very yeah, difficult to because buy. for the police, you can imagine the nightmare for, for police if if they came across kids with replica pistols, uh, not being sure whether they were real or not. Mm. Mm. Last week we mentioned transgender athletes. We did, mm. and there was a news report since then about. Uh, I'll just read a little bit. There's a link on the website. Transgender athletes are to face tougher restrictions on competing in Olympic Games and international athletics with a halving in the maximum testosterone level permitted for women's events. The IOC will issue new guidelines to 55 sports federations from archery to wrestling later this year and it will apply for the Tokyo 2020 Games and it's going to be a reduction in the maximum testosterone levels from 10 to 5 nanomoles per litre and the changes follow controversies about what's happened in our Commonwealth Games with the weightlifter and and the runner yeah Uh, the rules for transgender athletes have been relaxed since the start of the century they were first permitted to compete in the Olympics of 2004 provided they'd completed genital surgery two years of post-operative hormone replacement therapy and all legal gender changes. The requirement for surgery was waived under guidelines published in 2015 and the period of hormone replacement therapy was reduced to a year. So it seems that you could have kept your genitals and had hormone replacement therapy for a year and have been eligible then for the women's events. Hmm. It's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it looks like they've toughened that up and we'll see what happens there. 
Gentlemen, uh, Essential Report polled a 1,000 Australians and said, overall, do you think the level of immigration into Australia over the last 10 years has been too high or too low or about right? What do you reckon people said? And don't look at the screen. <laughs> I can't read the screen from that distance. Good. Um, I would imagine that a majority would have said it's been too high, but I couldn't tell you what the position would be. Tough man. I have no idea, to be honest. Um, mm. I don't want to project my own feeling onto what I think the public might yeah. say. I don't know. Okay. The answer is that 64% thought that over the last 10 years, the level of immigration has been too high. 5% thought it was too low. Not many people wanting more immigration. And that's interesting. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's overwhelmingly of the too high sentiment? I think it's... Um, Tony Abbott has knocked something... He, he has got something right with that. He has, um, he has got people thinking about it and that sort of stuff. He has hit the nail on the head when it comes to housing. He has said that, you know, with the influx of migrants and that sort of stuff, it has led to an increase in housing. But demand it's not, and that not sort of only stuff. Tony Abbott, is it? I mean, no. Dick Smith famously wants to limit immigration too, doesn't he? Well, he wants to limit population growth, so he says population that growth. Well, they are part of that. Yes. You need to limit immigration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's probably why you've got a majority there. And it did surprise me that it was quite that high, though. I thought it'd only be in the fifties, mm. but sixty-four percent saying that it's too high, that's and the others are. Don't know. No, the others are probably saying it's about right. Yeah, about right then. Mm. Yeah. Look, I would think that there'd be a significant number of people who would be worried that immigrants will take their jobs and make their jobs pay less. So if you drive a vehicle, I mean, there's an awful lot of immigrants could be driving Ubers, for example, or taxis. Mm. Yeah, there are. Or even trucks. Yeah. So it'd be a significant number of people who'd be worried that immigrants are going to take or devalue their jobs. Mm. And they'd probably be right to think that. probably would. Yeah. Well, it's... Yeah, there's there's probably some argument there. If you're a low-skilled worker... Yeah, mm. if you're a low-skilled worker, I think there's an argument there. The laws of supply and demand would say Mm. bring in a whole bunch of other low-skilled workers and it's just going to be tougher for you. Mm. I would have thought. So... And with the decline of union membership um, and the loss of bargaining power, we all know that yep. um, wage, wage growth has been flatlined for a number of years. Mm. And, yeah, why wouldn't people be nervous about um, having increased competition in the job market, particularly the low-skilled job market? Mm. Gentlemen, it's been a long time since we've had a quiz. Without notice. <laughs> I've got got ten questions here. I I think I might just do it by... Well, I'll just ask the question. First in can answer. How about that? We need buzzers. You need buzzers. So I'm expecting next week in the studio to have buzzers. (laughs) Okay. All right. We'll save it for that. Funny sounds coming out of them. Okay. I'll, I'll try that. I'll get a little dinger and a buzzer or something like that. So first question. 
These are all religious-based questions. Dear listener, play along at home. See if you can beat <laughs> the 12th man and the velvet glove. Question one. Ouch, what was that? That was me just banging the... Uh, oh, that was, that was the sound of a Carlsberg <laughs> hitting, yeah, hitting the, the uh, microphone, microphone stand. stand yeah. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't the first question. Here's the first question. What is the Society of Friends or Friends of Truth more commonly known as? The Quakers. <sighs> boom, boom. <laughs> well done, 12th man. I need a score. A little paper here. Okay, 12th man. Velvet glove. One point. <laughs> Excellent work. Let me, see. Let me see if I can add something to that. Um, uh, is there a prize? The Religious Society of Friends began in England in the 1650s. One of its founders was George Fox, who advised his friends to tremble at the word of the Lord, giving rise to the name Quaker, which was originally a term of ridicule. Good work, 12th man. This one's an easy one. A mosque is associated with which religion? Islam. Very good, 12th man. Uh, Scott, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. This is difficult. I mean, we both knew it, of course. (laughs) Yes, of course you did. I I thought I'd give that one to Scott. I don't think either of you will get this one. This one seems tough to me. What toy is associated with the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah? The dreidel. Scott. (laughs) What is it? A dreidel. It's a four-sided spinning top yeah. generally used for a game of chance or after dinner entertainment during the eight days of Hanukkah. Do you know there's a, there was a, a song? Was it, um, you know, that American guy that, that recorded American Pie and Vincent and those songs? Didn't he yeah. have a song about a dreidel? Because well, that would ask. Because I the had no card. idea. He is the expert on, on I had no on idea what it was. Until and dreidels. You, but I, I have a clear recollection of a song about a dreidel from that sort of... Um, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Scott, that is really good. Mid-70s era. <laughs> uh, who was the guy who sang those songs? American um, Pie. Uh, that was... Um, Don McLean. Don McLean, yes. yeah. Apparently he wasn't that good in concert. I saw him perform. Yeah, what do you think? In Hyde Park. Yeah. It was a free concert put on by Double J and it was terrific. Okay, there you go. It was beautiful in the middle of Hyde Park and they, they just announced it on the radio. Hey, we're putting on Don McLean's in town, we're putting on a free concert. And I went along with a bunch of friends and it was terrific. Okay. Uh, which day of the week do Seventh Day Adventists? Saturday. Very good. Velvet gloves. He's jumped in quick. Seventh-day Adventists regard the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath, the biblical day of rest and worship. In Judeo-Christian tradition, Sunday is regarded as the first day of the week, making Saturday the seventh day. Very good. Put you down, Scott. You're up to three. Twelfth man's regretting (laughs) passing up the Islam one. But you're you're generous. Yeah. Okay. Um... According to Roman Catholic Church, what is Marian apparition? Marian apparition. Hmm. No vision of the Virgin Mary. Close. Uh, Yes, close. It's actually spot on. (laughs) 
The answer is a vision of the Virgin Mary. Mm. Well, apparition and that sort of stuff, and a Marian thing. I thought, well, maybe it must be a vision of it's the Virgin Mary. Guess, the incident Scott. at Lourdes in southern yes, France. That's what I was thinking. It's of, probably yeah. the best known of these visions. Scott, you're up. Well to done, four. Scott. <laughs> this is in, this is impressive. Okay. Um, uh, here we go. If you exhibit wounds that correspond to the wounds of Christ, precisely what are you experiencing? Stigmata. Scott, again. Twelfth man was pointing at his wrists very early on. Not my wrists, my, my palms. Palm. Well, the I nails, just couldn't think of the word, but... My, yeah. my understanding is that supposedly the nails would have gone through the wrist. Really? Because... Uh, the weight of a body would rip through the hand. Pull out, yeah. But yeah, the nails but... actually went through the wrist because there was enough bone there in the wrist that you you get the nail between those two bones and you get and... better purchase on the Correct. cross. But my understanding is that the standard Roman crucifixion methodology was to tie people to a cross. True. So he would have been tied there, and then after that, they just would have nailed his hands in place and that sort of stuff to add humiliation to the whole thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's assuming it happened. And that's assuming Jesus ever existed, which is debatable. In the King James Version Bible, what nationality was Goliath? Tough one. I'll give you a choice of four. Okay. Okay, you can have Canaanite, Philistine, Moabite or Edomite. Here's a Philistine. Well done, Scott. You're up to six. That was me guessing. But yeah, you know. You'd be deadly at religion trivia nights. <laughs> okay, here's Most one. Most years of religious indoctrination <laughs> wasted on Scott. Mm. Moses was a slow speaker, so God allowed his brother to speak for him. What was his brother's name? Is that true? I, d- I haven't heard that before. I never knew Moses had a brother. I didn't either. I didn't know he was a slow speaker. No. Mm. I couldn't tell you. I he couldn't. had a brother, really. I mean, of course, we all know Moses is totally mythical, but, yeah, okay, so he had a mythical brother as well. I couldn't tell you what Moses' brother's name was. He's uh, apparently Aaron. Oh. So um, put that one in the maybe column as... It's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. Aaron is a typically Jewish name, but Moses is actually Egyptian. Hmm. And, of course, we know that the um, Israelites didn't really live in Egypt no, and didn't, they didn't find their way out. There's no archaeological evidence for that. No. Uh, this one's an easy one. If the flying spaghetti monster is your deity of, or deity of choice, to which religion do you belong? Pastafarians. That's very good. Twelfth man. Up to two. Thanks, Scott, for letting me get that yeah, one. You're very generous, Scott. Um, what uh, which religious leader is said to have found enlightenment while sitting under a tree? Buddha, making a late run, the twelfth man. <laughs> what was his name? Uh, Gautama, something. And I went to Buddha's uh, alleged birthplace in Nepal, right, a few years ago. Yes, and they they've built a, a building over the whole site. Uh, and you walk on a, you know, like a catwalk above it and look down on the supposedly very spot where his mother 
gave birth, but right. you know, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical about. Uh, I'd be very sceptical about that. that. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting to visit such places, isn't it? Um, uh, here's a question: Which is not one of the first four books in the New Testament of the Bible? Um, Revelations. Mm, you could. There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. That one doesn't make sense. They've given the answer of Genesis. No. Um, well, Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament. Correct, yes. Mm. So uh, I think for that one I had to give you a list, and so we'll scrub that one. There you go, dear listener. I'm impressed mm. with the religious Scott's knowledge <laughs> of the panel we have here, <laughs> and I am shit scared that one day you guys are going to turn around on me and involve it. Trivia question thing, and I'll have to answer some. I'll be exposed <laughs> when put up against the velvet glove. That's good. How, how, how much of the Bible have you actually read? Uh, not much. I haven't either. I mean, I've read it only in bits and pieces when I come across a reference and I look it up. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, Scott? I read quite a lot of it. Yeah. I was a Bible-believing Christian until my... Late teens, early 20s, I think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And you actually went to the trouble of reading a whole lot of it. I did, yeah. Mm. Why? What, what was the motivation? I don't know. You just yeah. told to. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read the whole thing. I mean, you, you know, you, I didn't read it from start to finish or anything mm. like that. Um, the Psalms were very boring mm. and, um, and that type of thing. And I don't know. It's... <laughs> If the dear listener wants a conversation about why I rejected faith and all that sort of stuff, I suppose it comes down to the definition of God in the Old Testament was something that was um, a, a complete anathema to what he was presented in the New Testament. And I mm. thought to myself, if these were both divinely inspired books, then surely they should have some sort of crossover that would make some sense. But it didn't make any sense to me. Mm. So... And, you know, I'd also started to read a fair bit on evolution and all that sort of thing. And um, I came to the conclusion that the two can't be the same. They can't be both right. Mm. And so, yeah. Mm. There's a podcast called The Scathing Atheist. It's a very good podcast, yeah. yeah. I haven't listened to it for a long time. But I know at one point they basically went through the Bible chapter by chapter and where they, you know, in their little panel, they agreed to read a certain section and then report back. Mm. each podcast mm. as to their thoughts on the passages and yeah. it sounds like too much of an ordeal but you know, they could say they actually read every word of the Bible by the end of it and then I think they worked on to other books as well. Yeah, they're, so. they're just currently doing The Case for Christ which is a book that was written by a leading Christian apologist, I can't remember what his name is, but they're, right. they're doing that one and they've been through and they've done the Koran and the Book of Mormon and all that sort of thing. Right, yep. It sounds too hard for me. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Mm. But we all had, you know, a fair amount of exposure to Christian doctrine as children. You went to a Catholic school. You went to a church school, didn't you? Yeah, I, did, yeah. I, I went to public schools, but I was pretty much involved in, you know, Sunday school from early childhood for a number of years and then in a. Um, like a youth society, you know, the Church of England Boys Society mm. uh, for a number of years. And, you know, they, they always had, you know, 
Bible readings and things like that. So I, you know, I've heard a lot of it. I've never actually sat down and tried to methodically read my way through the, the entire book, but I've heard so much of it and, you know. It's one of those things. I, I, <laughs> I haven't looked at it in years and years and years, but I still have my Bible in the bedside table, you know, and I haven't, I haven't even just sent it anywhere. Yeah. I still have the one my mother gave me. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I was. I was a very small child. I think she she bought one specially for me to take with me to to Sunday school when I was a tiny little child, and I still have it. Mm. And um, a, a colleague a few years ago, um, I could not believe the gall of this person, but he was a practicing Christian and. If he's listening to this podcast, which I highly doubt, he'll know who I'm talking about. But one day he walked into um, our workplace, our shared workplace, and plonked this Bible down. Oh, no, 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 he didn't actually. He, he, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, I've, I've got something for you. And later on, when we, you know, between, between jobs, he presented me with a Bible. And he, he was a person who knew very well that I was a confirmed atheist, um, just the, the, the sheer arrogance of some Christians who think that atheists are these lost people who don't know why they're atheists, presenting me with a Bible. I mean, I accepted it without complaint because I didn't want to embarrass him because he was basically a decent person. He thought he was doing you a favour. He did, exactly. But I was inside my head thinking... You arrogant prick, you know. Mm. Who do you think you are knowing <laughs> better than I what it, you know, why I'm not a Christian? I quite like my skeptics annotated Bible mm. because it's cross-referenced with other sections and it points out inconsistencies and mm. quite like it, yeah. Mm. And so when I was talking to our friend Chris Lambie, um, I was able to refer to that, so... Mm. Mm. Dear listener, if you're looking for a version of the Bible, I recommend that one. Mm. Mm. Um, here's an interesting one. There's a citizenship ceremony in Paris, in France, and an Algerian woman is married to a Frenchman and she applies for citizenship and she's at the ceremony. And as part of the ceremony, she is supposed to shake the hand of one of the officials and she refuses to do so. <coughs> Didn't say exactly why, but presumably she was Muslim. And they said, well, hold on a minute. If you're not prepared to shake the hand of an official here, um, we're, we're not going to grant you citizenship. So they refused at that point and the case went to the relevant courts in the French legal system who confirmed... Fair enough. She can't be a citizen. Doesn't we shake hands? I've got absolutely no complaint with that whatsoever. Mm. I think it's a brilliant decision by the French court, you know. I agree. It's, it is really high time that we stand up to the whole nonsense that's being spread. And, you know, it's like that bloody ridiculous thing that we talked about a couple of years ago, 18 months ago or something like that, that that young girl in a German school refusing to shaking the president's hand. 
you know. Yes. Because she was a girl and he was a man. It yes. makes absolutely no sense. They're going to come to a country where you've got equality of the sexes. They're going to have to accept that you shake each other's hands. Mm. And if you don't, you can go. Mm. I mean, they had a revolution in France. Exactly. just made us say they take it pretty seriously. Exactly, they do. You know, France has gone to the point of banning the hijab and that sort of stuff in their schools. Uh, I think they haven't banned the niqab, but they've gone very close to stopping people covering, having the full face covering. It's a very anti-religious society. Mm. 12th man, you're happy with that decision? I don't know. I think it's a a somewhat tenuous basis for refusing citizenship. But look, you know, what I think has has to happen is that people are educated about values and um, and about the the strength of these values and and what these values have have actually achieved in terms of achieving equality of sexes perhaps a handshake is a test of that <sighs> yeah it's a pretty tenuous test i have to say but look so you, you know, would have been happy for her to have her citizenship Look, I, I, I think it should have started long before it got to that point, you know, in terms of determining whether or not she was, um, I don't know. Well, don't she know may well, she obviously has to... passed all other requirements. Exactly. She, she was at the ceremony. Well, so... if she's passed all the other requirements, I, th- I find that a pretty tenuous um, no, grounds I, for I, refusing I disagree, Paul. I, I, I honestly believe that they should. They, the French courts have stood up for something that is essentially French, mm-hmm. and they've said that if you want French citizenship, you have to shake the hand of the bloke that's over there. Well, look, you know, and I have no problem with it whatsoever. It's like saying, you know, if you applied for Brazilian citizenship and you refused to, you know, have a big hug <laughs> with yeah, the person he, presenting you. If, you know if, what I mean? If, I mean, it's, is, a, it's a cultural is, thing. If, when in, if, when if, in Rome... Exactly. That is exactly what I was going mm. to say. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. And if that is what you do in Brazil, you've got to go and have a big hug. That's what mm. you've got to do. I seem to recall we did an article once on a Swiss law where in a particular village, mm. if you applied for citizenship, you, you needed to show that you had mm. contacts and friends in your village. Yeah. And if you didn't... So there was an American guy who'd, who'd lived there for 10 years but had made no contacts with anybody in the village and had lived as a virtual recluse of some sort. And they said, no, you're not having citizenship because you haven't made an effort to be part of the community. Mm. But look, you know, it, it reminds me of that article that I think we're getting to later in the discussion about the strength of uh, liberal, you know, secular liberal society is that it it tolerates difference better than other systems. And you know, a handshake, yeah, you might say it's a pretty standard custom, cultural custom. But you know, if you're going to hand out citizenship to people from other cultures, then I think the fair thing to do is to help them become familiar with and grasp the, you know, the rationale for our values. Maybe they'd done that and she just didn't take it on board. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I don't know whether the handshake is, a, is a, a fair test. I'm just not convinced that that in itself is a fair enough test. Mm-hmm.
Maybe it's I'm not, not a deal breaker for you. It's not a deal breaker for me, no. Hmm. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe she just wasn't liber- comfortable. The libertarian dwarf man and well, maybe she just wasn't comfortable touching another person's hand, and some people aren't. Well, you know? She probably not because she's been indoctrinated by a religious faith that she's Look, not I, allowed to. I'll give you an example. I, I I have an acquaintance who's Japanese, Japanese female. And the, the Japanese, uh, as, a, as, a, as a group, are not particularly physical mm-hmm. in, in the way they, yeah. they greet others. They seldom touch each other. I mean, that, the handshake has become quite common simply because it's been a, adopted from, I think, West, you know, contact with Western people, and that's fairly okay. But you don't see Japanese people hugging each other. Now, she told me one time that... Um, you know, and she's not a not an unpleasant person, but she told me once that she was a little bit uncomfortable around Latin American people because they kept hugging her all the time and she just wasn't used to it and it just made her a little bit uncomfortable. And I thought, oh, well, fair enough. You know, that's not part of her culture. It's not like she's unfriendly. She just wasn't comfortable with that particular aspect of their culture yeah. and didn't want it imposed on her. And I but if she, was, if she was immigrating to their country and that was part of their official be, to become a citizen, you've got to have a hug, Yeah, well, this was then in I Australia, think that would be a very different but, thing. Mm. Yeah. This was in Australia, obviously. but I mean, you're asking for the privilege of becoming a citizen of another country. Mm. So had she asked for the privilege of becoming a citizen of a Latin American country <laughs> and they said... Part of the deal is here, we, we give each other a hug. Yeah. Well, an American country would be within their rights to say, well, you don't want to hug us. Well, if you, you say so. But, you know, I think it's a pretty sort of, you know, a pretty minor detail myself. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess from our point, our point of view, it also indicates other areas of of discord with the prevailing customs as well. Like if you can't shake somebody's hand, then it's extremely mm. likely that there's a whole bunch of other things mm. that you probably mm-hmm. won't want to do as well, mm-hmm. which um, are perhaps even more important. But, you know, if you can't do a handshake, then you probably can't do a lot of other things. Well, there are other things, and I know in mm. my ex- former... Uh, career as a high school teacher, I did encounter in one in one case a trainee teacher. You know, and as you know, trainee teachers have to do work experience uh, in high schools. And this was a Muslim female with a niqab. No, not a niqab, but you know, she yeah, uh, she yep. she, it's she a ca- slit. She yep. ca- well, not a slit exactly, but she she covered the the lower half of her face. Wow. And she would not uh, deal with male staff members. Right. She well. would not be uh, do her practice teaching with male teachers. I think she was even reluctant to deal with the male deputy principal, if I recall. Right. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's unacceptable. Um, Mm. You know, that definitely is part of our culture, that you do deal with people regardless of their, their gender in a professional setting. And I I found that quite um, strange, I have to say. I wasn't, 
uh, as political then as I am now, but um, mm. a- about things like that. But yeah, I, I did at the time. I recall fi- finding it quite strange and objectionable, and thinking, "Really?" And they and they're going along with that bullshit, you know. Mm. And they did. They went along with it. They allowed her to do her teaching practice. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Wow. See, that makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Mm. I think they should have knocked well, it on the head and said, "Well, well if, you, if you can't if you can't deal with male members of staff, then I think you're in the wrong but profession." It's, it's mm. this whole thing of bending over backwards to appear culturally sensitive, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's a load of nonsense, isn't it? I, I think it's high time that we <sighs> cultural sensitivity's got to go the way of the dodo. <laughs> Well, in the case you've just given, clearly it's going to example, it's yeah. going to affect their performance of their duties. I, I, I dare say she had no intention whatsoever of working in anything but an Islamic school. Yeah. In which case she would have been well accommodated, obviously. But uh, so, in which case your objection might be a bit harsh because ultimately, if she was just going to be working in an Islamic school, then it wouldn't have been a problem. No. Well, as you know, I. I'm, I'm dead set against any any form of re- religiously orientated uh, schooling, mm. anyway. But no, no, I. But given totally those schools object, exist, totally was... object to her doing her teacher training in a secular school and having that sort of intolerance um, tolerated, mm. which is what it is. Mm. But you've imposed on her a requirement that she just wasn't going to face down the track. Because if she was working in an Islamic school, it wasn't going to be an issue. Yeah, but to get there, she had to go through the training and that sort of stuff, which was part of the whole thing where you end up having to go and do prac and that type of thing in state schools. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned, if she can't cut it there, she can't cut it anywhere. But ultimately, though, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Of course you are. So if her ultimate aim was to be, you know, just a teacher in in an Islamic school, then her unwillingness to deal with males presumably was not going to be a problem there. They were going to cater for that. So the requirements that the system were imposing were unnecessary and unreasonable because for the role that she was seeking, they were irrelevant. I just don't think it was right that a a secular state school would um, bend their own norms and values mm. to that extent mm. to accommodate somebody who had obviously quite different norms Perhaps and values. she should have been able to do her training in an Islamic school. <laughs> Wouldn't you think? Mm. Yeah. All right. Speaking of um, this sort of topic, Denmark has banned kosher and halal slaughter. As the minister says, animal rights come before religion. So with both uh, kosher and halal, the beast has to be conscious when it is slaughtered, um, which means there's a degree of of pain felt by the animal that would not be felt otherwise. And fear. Yeah. So Denmark has said that's animal cruelty and your religious superstition requiring that is outweighed by our thoughts on animal cruelty and we're just not going to allow it. Well, what about live export trade from but Australia? On, before we get on to that, but you're, well, you're, you're in line with the Denmark government? 
Absolutely, I am. Yeah, I think it was a great decision. Mm. And, you know, it goes back to that uh, thing that you read out oh, a couple of months ago about the guy that said that um, uh, he said in response to this, he said, because it was something in the, the Netherlands, they were planning on having the same type of law. And they had the Jewish and Islamic people in Lebanon going burko about it. Right. And he said, well, there's no requirement for you to eat meat in your religion. Correct, yes. So you can just become vegetarians. Yes, that's right. That was Peter Singer, I mm. think's argument with religious freedom. Yes, mm. you don't have to eat meat. No. So... So that's what, they, yeah. that's what the Danish Jews and Danish Muslims are going to have to do now. They're going to have to become vegetarians mm. and tough. It, there's one, you know, silver lining to this in that it, it is bringing the Jews and the Muslims together for a joint sort of cause, if you like. Yeah, it's bringing them together for sure. Mm. Uh, animal cruelty on the, the sheep being sent in those ships looks pretty awful, doesn't it? What goes on there? It does look bloody terrible. But look, you know, we all know that the, the, the fate that awaits them at their destination is not much better. Mm. No, you see stuff on YouTube where they're picked up and and well, strapped, strapped onto roof racks yeah, and thrown yeah, in the boots. boots. Legs and tied together with fencing wire and thrown in the back of a car, in the yes. boot of a car. Yeah. I mean, it's horrific. Yeah. It's money, 12th man, free our economy. Can we it's give actually, when you look at the when you look at the total dollar value and that sort of stuff that's lined up with live export, it's not a huge industry. Really? No, it's not huge. It is a significant industry, but it's not the be all and end all of our of our animal exports. Hmm. And, and, and I think I think phasing it out would be a good thing. But we're told that um, certain markets will not accept, you know, chilled chilled meat. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that they insist will. on live animals. Yeah. Well, it might be halal or kosher. If, well, uh, perhaps well, we, we should well, allow although, them to find other markets. Although it still could be if it's certified. I mean, if it is slaughtered in Australia, but they just probably don't trust us. They don't to, trust us. No. Yeah. But, you know, when you see those those and, and pictures of those sheep and that sort of stuff writhing around in agony and being cooked to death on those large boats. And, and, and they also don't have the refrigeration facilities. So they, you know, you can't just dump um, kilos of frozen meat there for them to keep refrigerated and then, you know, transferred through the market system to the end consumer. They, they need live because... Otherwise, it'll just spoil. Perhaps I think in many cases that is definitely the case. You know, in Indonesia and that type of thing, they were saying that you know you've got to send over live animals because we need to slaughter them and then send the animals out to the market basically after slaughter. Mm. Whereas you know the beasts that we buy in a um, butcher was probably slaughtered three or four days earlier. Right, so we're in agreement with Denmark. I think Squeaky Wheel might object to that one. Squeaky Wheel, if you're listening, I think you have a view that live exports are necessary for our farmers and that they'll all go broke without it. But make contact Squeaky Wheel if that's the case. Um, Twelfth Man, you're a big fan of Spiked. I am. Mm. I love the way they challenge everybody's assumptions and challenge conventions right, left, everywhere. 
they're very free, pro free speech. They very, very much pro libertarian as well. I think. Yeah. Anyway, I think you alerted me to this article titled "The Principled." left-wing case against multiculturalism. Mm, it's a good one, isn't it? It's not too long and it's to the point. Yeah. I did think, you like it? I did. I think the key point is we've been saying for a while that this emphasis on identity is actually racism by the <laughs> proponents of the argument. And in some paragraphs here, they they spell it out pretty well. They um, do. Uh, there are other. I'll read a, a few quotes here. There are other parallels between multiculturalism and old-fashioned racial thinking. For instance, as Adamson points out, multicultural ideology makes a fetish, like the racial theories of yore, of ethnic diversity. What matters is not, as Martin Luther King believed, the content of one's character, but the colour of one's skin. Mm-hmm. Common human traits such as capacity for abstract thinking, creativity and self-consciousness are effaced in the name of what divides us. In this sense, multiculturalism is just as fixated on race as the racist thought of the past. I agree 100%. People don't seem to see it. They don't. That's true. Mm. And it goes on to say, the key planks in the pluralist, multiculturalist agenda are value pluralism and moral relativism. These imply that all moral beliefs from the liberal to the authoritarian are equally legitimate, and that all moral judgments are relative or subjective. I mean, this is, you know, postmodernism, isn't it? Mm. As a result, to take any one political ideology like liberalism too seriously is to commit some kind of abomination against the other. In, in other words, it's, it's a kind of cultural imperialism for us to expect... Uh, those who come from other cultures to, to, to live with us and become part of our society, it's, it's a kind of abomination for us to expect them to become liberal, mm. in, in, in value at least. Yes, this whole thing about moral and cultural relativism, which is nonsense, isn't it? It's, it's like this pretense that all human cultural systems are equally good at promoting human well-being and social advancement, and they're just not. Mm. But, of course, I'm a racist for saying that. (laughs) You are, yep. And you'll be accused of that by people who really are putting forth racist ideas by insisting that people of certain ethnic Mm. orientation... Mm should be treated differently because yeah. of it. And, and the other point that the article makes is that, you know, we, we, we treat the um, people from other cultures as groups rather than individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, we expect our, uh, each other to, you know, we expect our individual liberties and individual autonomy to be respected, but we don't extend it to them. We treat them as if they're homogenous groups rather than... Uh, a bunch of individuals with individual needs, aspirations and rights, you know. Mm. It's, uh, it's, a, it's double standard in mm. operation there. Anyway, if you like those ideas, subscribe to Spiked. Spiked is good value. Because it comes out with lots of stuff. Mm. Brendan O'Neill is behind that. And yeah. Look, he, he, mm. uh, I, I, I read an interview 
with him. Mm-hmm. And he, what is he, he, he once described himself as a, what was it? A, a Marxist libertarian or some such thing. Right. But he, he said it was actually a bit tongue-in-cheek. Right, yeah. So, you know, this idea that he's a libertarian is, uh, I don't know, not quite on the money. He's, he comes from a Marxist background, but he, he's definitely not, uh, you know, hoping for a Marxist revolution to overthrow the Western liberal um, system at all. He's not that way. We might get on to talking about Marx. Depends Mm. how we go. We're starting to run out of time here. But um, uh, quick shout-out. Thank you to the patrons. Ayame, Jimmy Spud, Jimmy S, Craig E, James C, Anonymous, James F, Caitlin, Tony, Steve, Brett, Sean, Alex, Alison, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig G, Janelle... By the way, Jimmy Spud, I'm looking at Patreon, and mate, maybe you are down twice as a patron. So just check. You might have, I think, um, you might be doing twice, uh, doing a double up on your donations there. So just check. That's what you really want to do. And I keep kicking the recording device here, but it seems to be okay. So thank you to our patrons. Um, and we also got a lovely message from David, who met us at uh, one of our meetings when we were in the Secular Party and he was with the Sunshine Coast Atheists yeah. and he was involved in the Defence Force and he's given us a shout-out, says he likes what we are doing and he's going to become a patron soon and asks whether we'd be interested in advertising um, stuff on the podcast and... The short answer is no, because it really annoys me listening to podcasts that have stupid ads on there. So, no, I'm not going to do advertising unless it's super relevant to what we're talking about, which is hard to imagine. So, um, You could put some advertising at the very end of the podcast, then people could just ignore it. Yeah, so, no. Secular beer or something? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> like you listen to podcasts and they're advertising sheets and beds and yeah. stuff. Just, yeah, it sounds terrible, so... Short answer is no when it comes to advertising. Um, yeah. Uh, I've got a link to an article which was about uh, an interview with Stephen Pinker. Carter Enlightenment Convictions Are Surprisingly Resilient. Did I send you that article? You hmm. did. I didn't. Okay. I only briefly read it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, the guy is into the person's interviewing him and says, "What are some of the classic experiments in psychology that you think an educated person should know about?" And uh, amongst the list of things he talks about is Tversky and Kahneman, which is the one that did a podcast on about their book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So, yeah. um, mm. so that was one that we've already covered, and he was also asked. Who is the most underrated psychologist of the 20th to 21st century? And his answer was Judith Rich Harris. Ever heard of her? No. Not until I read the article. Mm. I've got two of her books. Got one in my hand right now. Suitably dog-eared and highlighted and all the rest of it. You never heard of Judith Rich Harris? The Nurture Assumption? Very in-depth study of... 
you know, how do people turn out the way they are? Is nature it, versus nurture. Correct. Which one is, what is it? And in it, it's, it's a difficult book, and there's two books, but she ultimately comes to the conclusion that uh, 50% is your genes and 50% is nurture, but the nurture side of things doesn't come from your parents. It comes from your peer group. And that as parents, if you are trying to influence your children, essentially uh, once you've handed over your genes, you've done far more than anything else you're going to be possibly able to do. And the only other influence you can have is potentially to influence their peer group of your children. But the sort of examples and things that you do in the home will have almost no effect on them whatsoever. And uh, she's done a lot of interesting studies, particularly where you've got identical twins who are reared in the same home versus identical twins reared in separate homes who have been adopted out, for example. And what you find is that the ones who are reared in the same home are no more alike than the ones who are uh, living in different homes. That's a very simplified version of the book, but essentially... Uh, I've had this discussion with a lot of friends whose kids are sort of growing up and they look at them and they go, we'd spent all this time trying to indoctrinate them into certain ideas and they're doing the complete opposite of what we've been trying to teach them. Totally agree. And, um, and yeah, and I, I say to them, read this book because you really need to understand that your ability to influence your children is extremely limited. Yeah. So, for example, if you're trying to get a kid to eat something, say carrots, say your kid doesn't eat carrots, you're trying to get a kid to eat carrots, the best way to get a kid to eat carrots is sit that kid down at a table with other kids his age who eat carrots. That's the easiest way you can get your kid to eat carrots if they're not already eating carrots. So it's... It's sort of this um, peer group stuff. That what about you, Trevor? I mean, cast your mind back to when you were a child or, or a mm. teenager especially. Mm. Who do you think influenced your, your, your ideas and your behaviour the most? I mean, mm. I have to say for me, it wasn't my parents. No. no. I mean, they would have in those very early years. Yeah. But after that, it was my... My peers at school yeah. that I looked to for cues, yep. and and popular culture. Yeah. Now I've I've long thought popular culture is extremely influential. The, the other thing I is think that you could you could call popular culture another one of your peers, couldn't mm, you? Almost, yeah. but I mean not quite. But the other thing is that parents can do things that you can't do as a kid. Like you can't take cues from your parents because they've got a license to do all sorts of things that you just can't do. So. <laughs> So it's like comparing apples with oranges. They, they're, in a, they're working in a totally different realm to the one that kids are working in. So mm. kids can't copy their parents because they're not authorised to do the sorts of things that their parents do to a large Look, extent. Look, you mentioned, you know, uh, if, if you want to influence your kids, 
choose their peers. Now, you know, this is why people who are particularly religious choose to send their kids to religious schools because they're more, their kids are more like... I'm not saying this is the only reason, but certainly there is some logic in it. If they want their kids to associate with and share ideas with other kids from religious families and, you know, I suppose from their point of view in the hope that those kids think and behave more religiously than a similar group of peers in a secular school would. Yep, yep. And some parents homeschool because they For know the same reasons, that once yes. they get into the school system, mm. they'll They've be contaminated them. by... So they basically remove them from mm. a peer group. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got various bits that I've highlighted from this book and I'll just try and pick out a few bits and pieces. Um, uh, One thing is that parents actually treat their children quite differently. So you might have one kid who is extremely adventurous and bold and, you know, will climb a tree and do all sorts of things and you'll sort of say to that kid, look, just hold back a bit, maybe don't climb so high or just think twice before you do that and just drag them back a little bit. And you might have another kid who's extremely timid and you're saying to that kid, well, um, you know, give it a go, go on, it won't be that bad sort of thing. So when people are sort of in these studies when they're comparing kids and they're looking at parenting, she sort of makes the point that even within a family, the parenting styles can vary remarkably differently for different kids because of the circumstances of the kids are different. Mm. Yeah, so there was that one. Um, uh, There's a study that showed that a mother is on average more attentive to her baby if the baby is cute than if the baby is homely. And in some cultures, if the baby is male rather than female. Mm. As we know, uh, I already mentioned that identical twins reared separately are no more likely to be um, alike than those, or those who are reared in the same home are no more alike than those who reared are reared in separate homes. Um, uh, there was an interesting one, just on the the effect of peer groups and the society and the groups that that people mix in. And um, bear with me while I just flick to the relevant page here. It was to do with breastfeeding amongst African-Americans in the United States. And there's a real culture in African-Americans of using bottled milk rather, you know, formula rather than breast milk. Did you know that? Really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, Why? It's just part of a cultural thing, and that has happened in certain African countries and Look, I came Latin across American a countries. reference to, to, to breastfeeding in France, and apparently there's, if it's true, according to this article, French women are taught to think that their breasts are for their husbands, not more than for their babies. And I thought that was curious. You know, it's like um, breast, they, even if they do breastfeed, it's, it's for a relatively short period because they don't want their breasts to get too saggy from 
long breastfeeding because they want to save them for their husband's enjoyment, which I thought was interesting. Really? According to the article I read, how true it is, I, I have no idea. Here we go. Within a multicultural society like that of the United States, parenting practices vary across subcultural groups. Breastfeeding is most common among educated, white, financially well-off women. In some African-American communities, it has been so long since anyone nursed a baby that members of the younger generation are sometimes unaware that it is possible to feed a baby that way. The director of a New Jersey program designed to encourage breastfeeding among economically disadvantaged mothers reported, quote, I've had women say to me, oh, you mean you can actually get milk out of there? <laughs> isn't that amazing? It's staggering, isn't it? It is, yeah. Amazing. Staggering. Hmm. So anyway, there's lots of tidbits in this book, and I'll try and find some other bits um, and pieces along the way, but... Um, yeah, dear listener, if you've got sort of children getting into early adulthood and you're thinking, holy smokes, how did they turn out that way after everything I taught them? Um, the Nurture Assumption by Judith Rich Harris mm. can provide some level of comfort in that really your ability to influence them um, was a lot less than what you thought. And I know, I mean, we raised four kids and they're just hardwired from the very beginning, some of the stuff that they do. Mm. Yeah. And do you have any breastfeeding tips while you're at it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually I do. Um, most people don't know, but um, when you're breastfeeding, ladies, girls, um, get the whole breast in there as much as you can. It's not just the nipple. It's got to get the whole lot in there. You Ooh. want kids to... So get as much in there as possible, not just nibbling on the nipple. You've that's got to get very, a lot of the breast in there. It's very graphic. So, yeah, but yeah. it's true. Okay. There you go. It's very interesting. I had no idea. So, yeah. there's, that's. There you um, go. Trevor's breastfeeding tips. Yeah, my, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's my breastfeeding tips, Sam. Um, oh, gentlemen, oh, we've got on the agenda taxation and equality and stuff, but I reckon we're probably. Going way over time, so we leave that. Are you, we'll unless leave are you that keen? till next week. Yeah, yeah. I just want to ha- answer Brett's assertion. Yeah. Yes, go oh, on. Okay, please go. Uh, Brett said, "I just want to add a couple of you argue that people are paying fifty percent tax and said income tax should be capped at fifty percent, insinuating some people pay more." This is a tired old argument that needs to die. The highest tax bracket is only 45 and our scale system means even if you're earning a million dollars, you still only pay 42%. Don't forget there's a loophole for many people where they just create a business around themselves and the business is only charged 30%, saving themselves 12% of their $1 million. That's not the case, Brett. There's a thing in the Tax Act, uh, Division 7A, I believe it is. It's a thing that says that if you've got a private company that the directors and or shareholders owe money to. That's called a deemed dividend. And what that means is that the government comes along and says, you owe money to this private company, therefore we're going to deem that as a dividend and then you're going to be paying tax on it at the full marginal rate. And it comes out uh, unfranked. So that is a thing that was put in there designed to stop exactly what you're talking about just then. 
Right. So it's if you're extracting money out of the company. Exactly. But as long as it stays in there, it's only 30%. Exactly. But once you start taking it out through loans or other things, it's then... Got to, it's got to end up in the hands of the shareholders as income. Yes. yes. Look, Breck made another comment about, um, you know, I think I... I made a, a facetious comment about um, someone in my family claiming that he works for the first, you know, until noon Wednesday for the government and, and only the last two and a half days for himself. Look, I, I, I agree with you, Brett, that uh, we, we're not paying the government, we're contributing to the community. We're contributing to all those services that we all need and enjoy and um, I didn't mean it to sound like I thought it was, in fact, uh, you know, some sort of highway robbery on the part of the government. Well, mm. you know, I, I tend to agree with the... I tend to agree with where the money goes, but I think yes. you've got to say you've got to work for the government, though, you know. Mm. Anyway. And, you know, he's right. He, he's right. You know, when you've got a scaled tax system and that sort of stuff, you don't pay 50% up front. You pay 50% yeah. on the last big chunk of income that you get. You get the first... Twenty thousand dollars tax free. Then right. after that, it's thirty two percent. Blah 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 blah. And then it goes up to it goes up 49, to forty five. Well, no, it goes up to forty five in total. Now it really should go up to forty. It used to be that you used to pay forty nine point five percent as your top marginal tax rate. It was forty eight percent tax, one point five percent Medicare. Forty nine point five was the highest rate of tax that you ever paid. I think that we should return to a top tax rate somewhere around that anyway. You know, you, you'd probably, you know, it used to start, well, God, when I started working, $50,000 was where it kicked in. That was where the top marginal tax rate started. Obviously, it's got to be much higher now. But I do think that people earning more than a quarter of a million dollars should be paying more than 45% of their income tax, of their income in tax. Really? Mm. Sorry? Really? Well, anything over that two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, yeah, I think that you know, should as be long- paying more than forty five percent. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I just think we need these companies to be paying tax myself. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, they, they do. We sorted. Yeah, they they do need to start paying tax, and that's why I've said that we should have we should levy tax on gross income so that mm-hmm. you can cut out all this nonsense of uh, of shifting profits overseas. Anyway, there's a shift in the waters, I think, um, and we'll talk about it next week. But basically. Ten years ago, people were all about tax cuts and less government. And I think the tide is turning where people are recognising, you know what, we actually do need to collect tax and have some form of government services to maintain the civilization that we're wanting to have. So Absolutely. that will be the topic for next week. And I just think, you know, as a society, we need to have a conversation about how much we want to pay. Yeah, yeah. You know, because... We are a low-tax country. Yeah. You know? Not yep. according to the government. Well, according to the government. You know, the government's, you you government's got its own, own barrow to push. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, it was like in that uh, Australia Institute report last week that Trevor touched on. You know, it said that as a percentage of our GDP, we are one of the lowest OECD countries in the world that taxes. So I don't have a problem if we have a sensible rational discussion about this but i agree the first ones that have to start paying are the corporates and then after that we can start talking about what the personal income tax rate should be right that'll be for next week tax and and Giannis farifakis 
speaks glowingly about Marxism and and all the rest of it. So we'll get on to that. Right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, dear listener. We will catch up with you next week. Thank you so much. Bye now. See ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.